Our sponsor today is none other than our Patreon members. You folks are bringing swords and HEMA to listeners worldwide, so thank you. To support our work and receive exclusive benefits, visit patreon.com forward slash swordwomen. Welcome to By the Sword, where we discuss the modern study of historical European martial arts, or HEMA, with instructors, experts and martial artists from all over the world. In today's episode, I talk to antique sword dealer and HEMA practitioner Thierry Flechier-Wathen. We explore an assortment of beautiful antique swords and discuss the career path of becoming an antique sword collector. The episode was recorded on the 20th of June 2021 on Instagram Live. Welcome everyone, there's a few of you joining now. This is the first of the third series of By the Sword podcast and my name is Fran Laquata. And today, this is the very first um, interview that I'm doing where I am live with my guest. My guest today is Thierry, the sword guy, Thierry Fleckier-Watton. 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 No one gets it right. And sorry, I apologise. <laughs> so um, we are here. We, I can't actually read the text from here, unfortunately, but I will at half past, well, in half an hour from now, so quarter past, Quarter past the hour, I will be checking to see if anyone has any questions for Thierry. But first of all, I want to say, Thierry, thank you so much for coming on the show. That's right, happy to be here. It's fun <laughs> to be interviewed in person. In person. Um, and the great thing about this is I get to see the swords and we can look at them up close and talk about them. Uh, so Thierry uh, has a business selling antique arms. And the thing I want to ask you first of all is, um, how did you get into this? What came first, HEMA or antique weapons? What was it, chicken or the egg? It, it's a bit of a fuzzy one because I sold my first sword the same week I joined the HEMA club. Oh. So I quit my job working as a chef and I started working in an antique shop. Oh. And that is the same week I found Portsmouth British Martial Arts. And so I started fencing and selling swords in the same week. Wow, so they came, came arrived together. Um, what were you studying in Portsmouth? Oh, I wasn't studying, I was working as a chef. I mean, HEMA-wise, sorry. Oh, HEMA-wise, yeah. uh, my bad. Uh, I was doing broadsword, British military and Scottish. Cool. And are you still tra- training with the Portsmouth folks now? I don't go down as much as I would like. But I like, when I do go down, it is always fun to see them and it's always fun to have a fight if you're there. (laughs) And what was that first weapon that you, uh, was it purchased or sold? The first sword I sold, the first (laughs) antique, was a... mm, And when was that, sorry? Oh, this was about five, five five, six years ago. And I was working in this place called the Antique Storehouse in Portsmouth. And the person who got me into antique swords, Matt Easton, from watching his videos, walks in and I sell him his birthday present to himself. (laughs) It was a beautifully engraved 
early Victorian cutlass made for private purchase. Oh. Which is quite a fun little thing. Oh, a special one-off. Yeah, not the sort of thing I could afford when I was started working there. I wonder if you still got it. Um, so, what period of history is your favourite? I dabble quite a lot because I buy and sell anything that interests me, but I would have to say it would be between 1600 to 1800. 1600 to 1800. Like the, the, the Age of Enlightenment, the Wars of Religion, um, the Napoleonic Wars, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, it's just an incredibly well-developed military period. Mm -hmm. And you have the falling of empires and the rising of empires and the the modern army comes about. And you're not limiting yourself to European swords, are you? No, I, like I said, it's anything that interests me. So I, I like my Indo-Persian, I like my Ottoman. I also do occasionally dabble in Asia, well, um, Southeast Asia. Mm -hmm. So I will occasionally have a few Japanese or Chinese weapons, mm -hmm. but largely it's European and Indo-Persian. Personal interest. How often do African weapons appear on the antiques market? Uh, they are relatively common, <laughs> but underappreciated. I've only just started to get into them myself. I, for a long time, I was very much of the mind that they weren't that interesting. <laughs> but when I started studying, there are lots of facets of it that are just incredible. They didn't change in a long time, much like the Japanese swords, mm. because they didn't need to. They were perfect at what they did in the environment they were in. And originally, I liked development, so without the development, I didn't have the interest. Mm. But then, seeing them and seeing all the nuances, they're just lovely. So not like a British military sabre, which could vary from decade to decade? They have less variation, but it's the small details that make them art. And also it helps you tell where they come from. Many axes, for example, they have the vague same shape. It's an acute angle, one spiky blade, quite long by European standards, and a very short haft. But they were used all across West and Central Africa, and the little details let you know which where they come from. Mm, interesting. Um, I, I only ask because the historical African martial arts community is something that I'm um, coming across more frequently on other social media platforms, and it, I find that African weapons pop up in places like... Um, um, Forged in fire, things like that, documentaries mm. and that. So these these kind of African weapons pop up now and again. So we see a lot of European weapons and we see Asian and uh, Persian Indian weapons pop up. But it's interesting to sort of consider what is actually out there, what interests people, and what periods these things will come from. Um, so I've asked what your favourite period is, and it's quite a, quite a well, broad period. Yeah. But what is your favourite weapon? Your favourite type of weapon? I would say to fence with the broadsword. So as, as a fencer, the broadsword I think is the ultimate weapon because it is incredibly long, incredibly spiky, and it has an iron boxing glove on it. 
Does that happen to be the first thing you learned? Yes. Yes. So there's some <laughs> bias there. Um, my second favourite defence with would be small sword, which has no protection whatsoever. So yeah. it, it's extremes. Yeah. So very protective, chunky boy, to very daring, spiky boy. Um, and we've got some pretties laid out. And you said that this table is covered with some of your favourites. Can I challenge you uh, to pick out your favourite from here and tell us about it? My favourite changes quite a lot. but okay. at the This week? This week. I've, I've had this for about a month. It is this piece, and hopefully you can see there. Mm -hmm. It is wrong, is the first thing that everyone says about it. It is a small sword hilt dating from 1734 or 1736, and there is an 1821 light cavalry blade attached and all the silver fittings to go with the blade are dated to 1826. So it is a horrendous collection of a beautiful blue and gilt blade on a sterling silver small sword hilt. So it's someone who wanted to be incredibly stylish and old fashioned, but they wanted a modern blade at the time. And it's very rare that you can date things precisely but because silver hallmarks are very well controlled in the UK mm -hmm. and have been for hundreds of years, we know exactly when each part was made and when they were put together. And it's blue and gilt, shiny, silver, which is my favorite sword hilt material, mm -hmm. a bit ridiculous, but nice. And it just, it's wrong, but right in every way. Can you okay. pin, is it possible to discern when it was the Frankensword was uh, put together? I would say it was most likely put together in 1826 when the blade scabbard fittings were put together. <laughs> and it is just so well constructed that I can't see it being put together later. The peen is perfect, it doesn't move, it has been made incredibly well. And as you can see, it is really shiny. It's so pretty, that blueing and the, the gilt and all those little tiny, pretty engravings. And silver always, and gold obviously, always kind of have a magical quality to me because they just don't age. Yeah, they, they, just, they just are designed to be pretty and functional. Mm -hmm. And silver is a bit like brass because it work hardens. Mm. The more you bang it around, the harder it will get as long as it doesn't Look snap. Gorgeous, okay. So that's this week's favorite. Um, time is it now? Oh, we've got a bit of time. So how difficult is it to get into antique sword collecting and selling? Um, the collecting is very easy because mm -hmm. you just need to have money. Have money. Um, <laughs> the collecting side of it, I would say the hardest part is gatekeeping. There are quite a few people who like to hoard knowledge and they don't like to give things away. And, but I, I reckon there's a new generation of collectors who are younger i would say is the first part and also we like free knowledge mm -hmm. we like sharing what we know and finding out 
what things are, where they come from. That has become so much easier just with a very pleasant community. And dealing, uh, if you wanted to make this a, a job, it is a bit challenging, it's very risky. And I, I, would, I always say to people who ask me, it's buy and sell what you like and I hope there's a market for it. At the very least, you have an amazing collection. Mm -hmm. And don't go too risky. Mm -hmm. Start cheap, and yeah, just go from there. Talking about buying and selling what you like, which of these ones on the table are you going to be the saddest to uh, say goodbye to? The ridiculous small sword is one. Mm -hmm. The this one I would have to say I would be very sad to lose. Okay, tell it's, us about it. It's an Anglo-Indian sabre, most likely made for a Dragoon company and potentially for an Indian officer serving with Europeans. So, so the hilt is just very well made. Square guard, very unusual, but it was used by some Dragoons. A South Indian lion or tiger's head. It does look a bit like a child. <laughs> a lot of the lion heads on British sauce look like Yorkshire Terriers, I think. <laughs> it's a bit silly. Um, but the blade is pattern welded, so it has lines of carbon down. You can see mm. slightly. I haven't, I've polished out the etching, but you can still see some of it. Mm. And the hilt is green ivory, mm. which you don't see very often, and it's just nice. And like nice examples of it are like George Washington's sword, which has a green ivory hilt and just feels nice. But this has passed through the hands of quite a few well-known collectors. You can find this sword, right, if you type in Anglo-Indian sabre greens grip, <laughs> this sword will pop up. And you can show it to the folks who are watching. You keep telling us about it. And you can find a variety of collectors and dealers who've owned this over the last hundred years and whilst it's not the most valuable sword I own when it does go up for sale I'll be sad to lose it because I will no longer be part of its history mm. so tell us about green ivory what does that entail uh, it's just dyed it's just been dyed yeah, you can see the uh, you can see the ivory underneath uh, yeah, it chips off, it's very shallow. Mm -hmm. uh, if you see a cross section of dyed ivory, mm -hmm. you will, it doesn't go very deep no. usually. So it, it's an oddity and unless it's textured like that mm -hmm. with knurling or cuts, it'll usually fade away off of a smooth bit of ivory. Mm -hmm. But it, it's just a wonderful sword and that is about as curvy as I think a sabre needs to be. Right. <laughs> this is how I get into arguments with all the sword people, uh, the sabre people. <laughs> yeah, upset sabre people. It's not difficult. There's so many, so many variations, and everyone's Sorry, got a favourite. Sorry, Colin. Is that? <laughs> um, so uh, let me just tell the folks who are watching at home at uh, 15 minutes past the hour. Um, we will turn to you uh, and please give us any questions that you have about any of the swords on the table, any questions for Thierry, um, any questions you've got about antique weapons at all. Um, 
and I've got loads of questions because obviously we can just talk about all these pretty toys that we've, we've got here on the table. So, um, yeah, so transitioning from a chef to an antique sword collector, how did it come about? Um, was it something that you'd contemplated for a while? I was in the weird position of working for a restaurant that was owned by an antique dealer. Ah, so, unique position. Yeah, I, 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 all I needed to do was walk 20 metres and I, was, I moved from the dining room where I was working to the antique shop. Mm. And I eventually just switched. Uh, I, I switched chef knives and fire for swords and grenades. It's essentially <laughs> the same thing. It's just very dangerous. Yes. Um, and what advice would you give to someone who wants to get into this? What are the things to watch out for? Oh, the things to watch out for is... I would say invest in books before you do anything. Because quite a lot of the books are limited prints and they haven't made it online yet. Or just don't be scared to ask anyone. So, some dealers and collectors don't like answering questions. Lots of us give free valuations. We will tell you if something is fake or not. And if it's a fair price, I generally don't like to comment on other people's prices, but if it's overpriced, I, I, I might say that. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, just ask. There's lots of communities online. There's almost all fences will know someone with antiques mm -hmm. so just be part of the community ask be polite and you will find out anything you need to know um, and always see if you can find two examples of something right to compare yeah um, and as a humorist as a historical fencer obviously this is a you know these are these are your two passions how important do you think it is for haemophobes to learn about the periods and the actual weapons rather than just focus on the movements and the training, well, you know, the sort of trainers that we use in class? I, I've, I've not talked about this much, but I, I do have certain issues with events having weapons size or weight limits for fairness. Mm -hmm. I'm not a particular fan of this because... You mean in competitions? In competitions yeah, yeah. or... Or in well, class. In like, classes, yeah. like weapons should be equal. It's down to skill. Mm -hmm. I think as a historical fencer, that shouldn't be the case because it never was. Mm -hmm. yeah. I could find five examples of the same patent sword and they'll all be different. There's a range of sizes and weights, and yeah, that's my only issue. I, I think that it should be slightly there less There should be a range. And I think it should be roughly tailored to the individual fencer. Mm -hmm. Say, um, Silver, he had his idea for what a perfect lens sword would be. That differs by your body. Mm -hmm. and. Not everyone needs to do the same thing because I, like I, I have quite short arms for a fencer, yeah. and <laughs> but um, if we if I'm using the arm method, I have a very short sword. If I go to the top of the waist, uh -huh. I have a longer sword. Okay. Yeah. 
Yeah. I always get a short sword, whatever happens, so I have to go up to the armpit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so some, uh, I did a, a video earlier, someone was saying, oh, I heard that rapiers should be no longer than your arm. And I said, well, that's cap, because, you know, even a small sword is longer than my arm. Um, and, I mean, this one, for example, is what we got here. Uh, that one is a yatagan. So mm -hmm. that is, this is a full-length sword. Yeah, that's full-length, and, and that's a cutting. Yeah, it, it, it's a recut cutting saber, and it is tiny, mm. but it was perfect for what it was meant for, and who was mm. carrying it, and whoever was carrying this, this would have been around at the same time as later small swords, early sabers, and spadroons. So it's a contemporary. Yeah. So this would be fighting against. Things that are it's a degree longer. Yes. Yeah. And a lot of it is down to skill, but I do think mixed weapons and more variety with weapons is quite important mm. for the historical context. I think you're you're a fan of mixed weapon tournaments, aren't you? Yeah, I want to have a knife and go up against someone with a broadsword or a longsword. I know there are safety elements involved, <laughs> but yeah, I, I want a long. Uh, the club that I've been going to before the last lockdown, mm -hmm. I like using a hunting hanger against rapiers because mm -hmm. I don't value my safety. <laughs> this is just science. Exactly. <laughs> I am happens. an experiment. Yeah. Um, I've, I've been to and I've run tournaments where you randomly choose, select the uh, weapons for each person. Oh, good games. Yeah. <laughs> so rather than, you know, you, you grab them off the ground, we have a, a either a wheel that you spin or, or you roll some dice and see what you get on a table. Um, so I've, I've run tournaments that are mixed weapons tournaments, but it's mixed match weapons. So one round in a in the pools matches, you know, one round might be with uh, uh, rapiers, the next round might be with longswords, but it's always going to be the same as your opponent. And I've been to events where um, it's randomly, each, each fighter's weapons are randomly selected. So I remember one time, uh, it was an event in Florence in 2014, there was a spear versus a dagger. Oh, and that just was that Yeah, way. and it's wonderful because there are, you know, in Giganti, he's got, this is how you do it. You know, if you are the guy with, with the dagger, this is how you go up against a, someone with a spear and you find yourself in this unfortunate position. Um, I'm just going to check to see if the folks have said anything. Because okay, sometimes if something's not working quite right, they will pick it up. Uh, waves at sword. Hello, Master Tom. There's Dave. Um, so, let's talk about some of the stuff on the table. Um, so this is a yat Yatagan. Yatagan. Where does that come from? This is the short sword of the Ottoman Empire. Mm -hmm. They also use various other things, but this is the short cutting weapon is usually held in a sash, along with a ridiculous array of other weapons, because the Ottoman warriors like to be festooned mm -hmm. with pistols, swords, and occasionally a spear. And it's a fun recurved blade, and this one is made of Damascus twist, which um, well, you can see there's a pattern in there. Mm -hmm. It's been polished out. Oh yeah, you can see it. And yeah, it's a fun horn grip, split grip. Mm -hmm. you can so is that an ergonomic feature? I think so, because it, it, you will hit everything you want to a fraction of a second before you 
feel you would it, there's a lot of heft to it and it all wants to impact there yes and it's just nice can i uh, show it to the folks of course so something like i mean these are all sharp obviously do you ever practice test cutting with them I have. Uh, you, I usually use more worn down ones, but I do enjoy test cutting. Mm -hmm. um, I think I think it was a, a conversation that I was having with you and a few people mm -hmm. over Christmas. Yeah. Uh, around the first lockdown, I had a paddling pool in my flat. Yes. And I was cutting fruit over a paddling pool to stop <laughs> oh, my fork. I didn't think sticking. you were serious. Oh, I was being, <laughs> absolutely. I thought you were. You were proposing. I didn't realise you'd actually done that. Oh, yeah. So you had pineapples and stuff in the paddling pool. Yeah, they, they, well, I lived in London at the time and I didn't have a garden because no one has a garden. Mm. And I just moved my sofa and put a paddling pool in the middle of the floor <laughs> to catch all of what would later be my dinner. And which was the best cutter from the paddling pool experience? It was a shamshir that I no longer have, an ah. Indo-Persian blade on a European handle. Mm -hmm. which was a fun little mix and yeah it destroyed pineapples watermelons whatever it went up against now i am not an, an expert on, in antique arms at all hence why i wanted to do a series talking to you folks so i could enlighten myself a bit more is there a spadroon on this table this is a classic let's take the label off we all hear about people like to sort of well, the dreams are talk the about dreams in some form of passion, whether it's to mock them or um, just uh, enthuse about them. So oh. we hear about them an awful lot. This is quite an early one, a basic one. Mm -hmm. um, well, it's a very gaudy one, again with blue and gilt. Mm -hmm. His blade is slightly longer than you would usually expect. Mm -hmm. uh, this is actually one of the benefits of having a camera orientation like this. <laughs> yes. Um, and it's just a basic knuckle bow and not anything complicated. It's a cutting and cut and thrust compromise sword. And it's good, it does the job. It has a very sharp blade, should you choose to sharpen it. Mm -hmm. And it has a point. So it's been sharpened on both sides to be a spear point. Mm -hmm. This one's only been sharpened up to about here, right. originally. Oh, from the top, from yeah. there, okay. And yeah, I, I like spadrooms. They are, they will do what a small sword wants to do. It will stab someone. It will cut someone. But you get a, a good and bad ones. So there are lots of bad lots ones of that are churned out. And then you get high quality ones like this made by, I think this one is Osborne. So Osborne was a maker around 1800. Most of his swords were before 1800. And yeah, they're, they're good swords. Spadrooms are brilliant. Mm. And also, there are things like this, which are. Shall I take one if you want to play with that? That is a. Well, earlier version. I would call this a shearing sword. What's and a shearing sword? A shearing sword is a compromise between a broadsword and a small sword, and they date to before spadrooms. Uh, they. They are sometimes called proto-spadrooms. I know Nick Thomas could talk about these for a long time. But I would say this is an English shearing sword. It's almost a basket hilt, but it's open at the sides. It has a lot of 
motion for the wrist. Mm -hmm. And this one is sharp on both sides, or was oh, sharp on both sides. Yeah. So it's a broadsword blade in like a knuckle bow and clamshell. Mm -hmm. Very much like the 1796 infantry sword. Mm. Uh, this one is a 1786 style. Mm -hmm. That's one's non-regulation. But yeah, spittoons are good. Mm -hmm. They they do a bit of everything. Can you tell us a bit more about spittoons? Why they're why they're, why they're special and good? Well, again, I'm sorry, Colin, but the spittoons they they are a bog standard sword. To put it simply, they are meant to be given to people who were trained to fight with epées mm -hmm. in school, because. Apparently, the British officers were very famous for not learning how to fight with their weapons. Oh. But, well, if you give them a sword that they would have used in school, at least they have an idea of how to fight with it. Mm -hmm. um, but it's a, a personal defense weapon. It needs to stop a bayonet thrust, it needs to stop a cavalry saber thrust. And. And. It's just there to keep the officer safe. The officer's greatest weapon is his unit. Mm -hmm. He doesn't need to be a hero, if he is. Good on him. Mm -hmm. But it's to keep him alive. A last resort, as it were. Yeah, I mean, and a sharpened bar of steel, that'll do the job. <laughs> I mean, it's something that, uh, you know, folks often ask about when they're asking sword uh, instructors and experts and collectors is, uh, you know, what's the best sword kind of thing, but you know, we're always saying context context, context this, like you say, the, it's the unit that, that is going to protect the guy rather than his sword, this is kind of like if everything hits the fan yeah, and it's just him versus whoever. So these, the officer class would be carrying small swords when they were at home mm -hmm. uh, if, if they were in their casual attire as it were so if someone's carrying a small sword at home they know how to fight with a thrusting small sword mm -hmm. and they don't so they would have known how to use it if they were a cavalry officer they would have had a curved sword but at home they would have had a small sword mm -hmm. and a spadroon is just an easy good solid All option rounder. yeah it, it does the job and there are historical complaints about it People called it the perfect encumbrance. But it was used around the world for a good 50 to 100 years, depending on where you are. Mm -hmm. And you could argue that it was used for longer in the sense of shearing swords, broadswords, and mortuaries, mm -hmm. which are cut and thrust weapons with some protection, but lots of mobility. The, yeah, the um, small swords and spadroon kind of community um, often um, talk about the sort of um, attitudes towards the spadroon being really unfair and it being like all based on some literature at the time sort of bad mouthing the spadroon but it actually like you say it was if it was used for if used universally for a significant amount of time it doesn't really attest to that Everyone complains about things. Yeah. Uh, like my favourite example... Yeah, Amazon reviews and things like oh, that. Oh, exactly. My favourite example of, in military history is uh, 
not really a sword, but it's the Lebel rifle used by the French. It was the most advanced rifle of the time. People did not like it because it didn't tend to work a lot, but that was mainly because people weren't putting the right ammunition in it because they couldn't find it because it was brand new at the start of World War One, essentially. And it, yeah, it's... They didn't do the training. Yeah, the people were complaining about it because they couldn't get the, the ammunition for it, but when they had the ammunition for it, it's amazing. Oh. So, room it had some complaints because, yeah, it's not as good as cutting as a saber, but that's just science. Of course it's not going to cut as well as something that makes a 45 degree angle. Mm -hmm. But it's there to protect an officer so he can direct 20 to a few thousand people. Mm -hmm. uh, um, oh, quarter past. So, folks, if you've got any questions for us, please uh, add them. Um, if you do, best way to do so is rather than putting your questions in the chat, please hit that button at the bottom of your phone. It looks like a question mark in a speech bubble because then we can see it from where we're sat over here. Um, put your questions in there and we'll read them out. Now, I have a couple of questions for you already, Thierry, that people have sent me. And the fun part is I would like you to try and work out who asked. <sighs> the first one's very easy. Uh, why is that guy that runs Antique Steel so cool? Thanks, Matt. <laughs> of course, that's Antique Steel. That's Matthew Paul. And he is very cool. I've got to give him that. <laughs> and, okay, this one is a bit more... Uh, might make you talk a bit more. Why are Indian swords so much better than European swords? I'm pretty sure that is Qatar arms. And oh, Indian swords and European swords, this is a silly argument because they're essentially the same. S some have curved blades, some have straight blades. The only difference is how you swing it. And you could always argue that yeah, the, the country that won had the better weapons. But, yeah. They're swords. Mm -hmm. They're good. I, I don't think you could ever have a bad sword unless it breaks as soon as you pick it up. Mm -hmm. And like um, we were saying just now, the sword really isn't the thing that fights on the battlefield, it's the people. Yeah, and like even in Indian armies of the 18th and 19th century, where there were more people carrying swords in addition to firearms if they had them, mm. they... The swords were a backup. It's, they would know how to use them better than the average British soldier, but the British soldiers who knew how to use them, they were drilled how to use them. So it, it's a mix. And of course, Qatar arms. Ah. Indian swords aren't better than European swords. They are just swords and they're all the same. <laughs> Very diplomatic answer. Of course. <laughs> no, of course, Spadrone's the best. If, if wearing swords didn't ever go out of fashion, which of the swords in this room would you like to uh, have about you on your daily, as part of your daily attire? Oh. Well, King George III said you're not fully dressed without your sword, and he was referring to small swords, and I am a huge fan of this one. Uh, the slot hilt 
gold chased blue and gilt small sword. It's ridiculously pretty. That is pretty. I'm not sure how practical it would be, but everything on it down to the grip is just lovely. And the grip is gold foil and silver wire. Wow. And oh my it, goodness. Yeah, it's so sharp. Like even if you grip the hilt really hard, it hurts a bit. Yeah. And I like that. <laughs> a bit of masochism at the blade. Gosh, even all on the inside it's all carved. Yeah, if I was wearing a sword out and about, I would want it to be as ridiculously flashy as ridiculously possible. Ridiculously flashy. I suppose because that's the part that people are going to see inside. Because it's going to be facing them if it's in the scabbard. Exactly. Or, um, if I could pick any sword that wasn't on this table, mm -hmm. it would be a sword that... Uh, ooh, I can't remember if Francesca Levy posted it or if she just commented on it. But it was George the Fourth's sword when he was the Prince Regent. Mm -hmm. It wasn't good enough when it was just gold, so he had it covered in diamonds. And uh, I always love to say George the Fourth was incredibly extra. <laughs> his budget for socks was more than most people would earn in a year. Oh my goodness! So his budget for swords was amazing, and they're gorgeous. So if I was just carrying one around, I would want it to be as ridiculous as possible. That is so extra. Um, talking of Francesca, um, when I interviewed her um, last year, we were talk. We mentioned about the, the horrific ways in which people have tried to clean up um, antique arms and armour, and she mentioned that the Victorians' favourite method was brick dust and oil or something to polish things up. What, have you come across any nightmares like that? Oh, yeah. Uh, one of my favourite horror stories is there was an auction house in, I think it was in Devon, and they had a wonderful collection of arms and armour go up. Mm -hmm. Their original pictures on their website weren't very good, so I went down there to have a look. Uh, the pictures they put up later, to be fair, were very good and honest. It was a massive collection of swords, halberds, um, pikes, armour, um, mainly 16th to 17th century, so pikeman's armour, um, English Civil War style helmets, rapiers, broadswords. Oh. And the person who had inherited it from someone had gone over it with an angle grinder. And they were very happy at the end of the sale, where they were standing at the back of the room gloating about it, that they had made, I think they had made, I don't know, about £80,000, which isn't a bad inheritance, but I felt like telling him on the way out that it would have been worth near a half a million if he hadn't taken a grinder to it, because he wanted these to be shiny. Oh, bless. And that, that hurts me. But I'm glad it hurt his wallet more. <laughs> he doesn't know. <laughs> he doesn't know how punished he, he has been. Um, talk to us about some of the stuff you've got out over there. Oh, the Japanese one? Yeah, Ooh. I can see a Japanese sword. This is my personal one. Mm. I don't actually have many Japanese swords. Mm -hmm. I'm not the biggest fan of them, I'm going to be honest. 
I, I think a lot of me was put off by what we call the Katana fanboys, mm -hmm. because working with Saws, I answer questions about Katanas every few days, mm -hmm. at least. And they are good swords for what they do. Much like the African weapons we were discussing earlier, they did not need to evolve as much as the rest of Southeast Asia or Europe or the Americas. But they filled a function and they were very good at what they did. And this, this is the one that I will keep until I improve on it. Mm -hmm. And I have taken the peg out so it is. It is. It is completely loose. But that blade is just a touch under 500 years old. Wow. And luckily, this period of Japan's history was incredibly peaceful. So you this. Didn't is, see a lot of action. <laughs> I doubt it was ever used. It looks brand new. It is just lovely. There is one part where it has oh, had a section polished out for, for a nick. Mm. And you know, being a Japanese weapon, the fittings have been changed and updated, so all of the other sections. The scabbard is 19th century, so 200 years old, and the rest of the fittings, uh, the metal fittings, are about 300 years old. Mm. So it has been updated, it has been kept clean. The Japanese have a different aesthetic to Europeans when it comes to cleaning and caring for antiques. Mm -hmm. So they will essentially polish down to new metal. And it's, it's not to everyone's taste, but it does create incredible swords mm -hmm. to look at. And it has to be done in a very proper way. Mm -hmm. And it's something that most people should never attempt. Mainly because you'll get told off a lot. <laughs> and the Japanese, the Japanese sword community is a, a, a scarier than the other arms communities because there are more rules and th those are very culturally important rules so they should be stuck to mm -hmm. but they are scary because of it you're scared to tread on, on toes and oh yeah um, get, get it wrong yes and but yeah, they are a fun little group of people. They are very niche, and they are very in love with their weapons, mm -hmm. as they should be. They are incredible works of art, and a lot of them are what we would consider medieval. Mm -hmm. So th this is a medieval blade, and that's mind-blowing considering how yeah, shiny it is. Yeah, that is crazy. That looks new. I can see something, oh, that's just some wool hanger from a, from a shopping mall type thing, because yeah. it looks so new. Well, the fun thing about this one is it has four holes where it's been cut down and the new peg holes have been drilled. Mm -hmm. And sadly, you can't see much of it anymore. There it is. The last bit's the signature. Oh, wow. That is all that's left. This, this blade was originally a tachi, which is a cavalry katana. So and that's been bigger. Oh yeah, this has been cut down by about a foot, give or take. Mm -hmm. And the last thing we have is the last two sections of this chap's signature. Wow. So I know his second name, <laughs> but no other details. So it could be one of any smith that lived between 
I believe 1250 and 1480, if I'm remembering right. And yeah, it's just a fun little thing. I don't usually dabble in them, mm. but I think every antique sword collector should have at least one. For completeness. They are works of art, they are incredible swords. They might not be to everyone's taste, but they have become almost a symbol of antique swords. Mm -hmm. And the market for them is always going to be there. Mm -hmm. European swords come in and out of fashion. Katanas never do. <laughs> what rock and roll never dies. Uh, we got a question in the questions box. Ah, Praise Jacob says, is there a type of sword you wouldn't buy? No. <laughs> I don't think so. You have to think there. I think my one exception would be currency swords or dowry swords. The, these are... Oh, the sort of uh, attachments. Well, the, uh, uh, the currency swords... Uh, a subtype of African weapons. Okay. So they are often oversized, impractical, not meant to be used. They symbolic. Are, they are symbolic works of art, usually given as a dowry or just as money. Mm. And they do nothing for me. Mm -hmm. They are incredible works of art. I love how they are displayed in museums. Um, the Musée d'Arcy in Paris has an incredible selection of African weapons, about half of which were never intended to be a weapon. And so there were these dowry and currency swords, so they're just literally like standings yeah. for cash. Exactly. Like it, it was also a prestige thing. Like mm -hmm. My sword is bigger than yours. Can you use it? No, but it's huge. Mm -hmm. And it just made you more impressive. You could afford more iron, you could afford more workmanship. I wouldn't buy them. They are fun. Hmm. Interesting. Um, we were talking about cleaning swords and, res and restoring and uh, nightmares. You were a chef and then you transitioned into becoming, working with antique swords and now you have your own, your own business uh, selling and dealing antique swords. How do you, you know, you're talking about sort of scary things like the thing that would terrify me the most about working with these apart from the fact that they're all sharp objects and i've got iconophobia is that cleaning stuff with just you know restoring things that have you know, wanting to bring out their best how do you go about that is that just take there. years and years of research and studying how to do it or do you just go for it or what i would say best avoided if possible mm -hmm. if if say you're a collector and you find a piece and say you want that blue and gilt spadroon but you can only afford a worn spadroon i would say don't don't, don't, don't touch it. it uh yeah they you can tell there's nothing wrong with restoring blades but i think it does devalue unless it is a wreck Mm. that has no historic or not much monetary value I, I generally uh, clean it, maintain it don't touch it mm -hmm. there are professionals who do these things um, well, Francesca Levy being the prime example her work is incredible mm. and 
I don't think many people are good enough. Matthew Ford has a wonderful article on cleaning antique swords, and there are a few people who do restorations, but aside from that, leave, leave, well it, alone. leave it to cleaning. Yeah. Have you ever had to give a sword to an expert to work on to I'm clean up, or do you generally just leave them as they are? That's how they were when you got them kind of thing. Yeah, I, I, well, silver, I do occasionally polish because it goes black eventually. Yeah. Um, with, if I see red rust, I remove the red rust because that will actively eat away. Mm -hmm. um, I may do a little bit of polishing. So, for example, I had a, a named sword about a year ago. It had been kept in lovely condition, but it had a perfect thumbprint on it where someone had touched it and not wiped it away. Right. I polished the thumbprint out because it wasn't deep, it hadn't pitted, and it, it was a little bit of work with some soft cloths and some polishing agents. Right. Because, I mean, we've had our sticky mitts all over these. Oh, After yeah. After we've done here today, you go, I'm presuming you're going to give them all a clean run. Yeah. And back up again. Be because I handle them so often, I give all the swords. I have a cleaning day once a month, and is this something that I have handled? Because I work from my office, and I show quite a few things on webcam, mm. because people want to see things in motion, they want to see things under light. Sometimes a photograph just doesn't do it. Mm -hmm. I do use gloves, but sometimes if it's something like this that has a functioning mechanism, you can't use gloves. Well, that folds. Yeah, yeah. so sort of folding guard. You can't operate a mechanism with gloves on. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's always worth cleaning after any handling. Mm -hmm. No need to go too crazy. Don't need to Renaissance wax something after every time. That's what I was going to say, because Renaissance wax is the thing that uh, hemophobes always put on their blades or when they're doing a maintenance day. Uh, yeah, well, I know the Wallace Collection use them for. Oh, it, it's well. it's amazing. I just don't think it needs to be used as often as it's not like a a daily polish. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't use it if I've just touched a blade with my bare fingers. Right. I just have a rag. Just give it a clean. Give it a wipe. Get the oils off, and then if I am doing my maintenance day, then I'll use my Renaissance wax. Mm -hmm. um, also, there are other products, Prelim and decoroder are also quite good. Okay. They are about as harsh a agent I would use to Was that D Lim? Uh Prelim, which pre is a, which is a polish mm -hmm. and decoroder gets rid of black marks on blades. Ooh. I have to look into that because I've got some very dirty swords at home. Um see if anyone's oh shiny uh <laughs> should have known that was gonna come up so um what we not talked about was on the table we talked about this one no no we didn't so this is the one with the folding guard tell us about that well i like to start arguments with the statement that the best French swords look British. Okay. So, from the front, that 
looks like an English slot hilt circa 1760, 1780. Mm -hmm. It's a nice little sabre. It is French. It was made in... Hmm. It was made in Metz by a chap called Goes. And the French are really good at labelling their swords. Oh, it's very nicely written on. I know, right? They're always so helpful. It's very helpful. The British are very... can be quite annoying. <laughs> so that one is made by Osborne, written nicely on the blade. Yeah. I have another Osborne blade in my office. No markings just at all. Um, just at the top of a G hidden ah. under the washer. And I, 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 I think that was meant to be for good quality, but it was used by him. Oh. And the fun thing about this is oh. it creates a half basket hill, almost. It does the job. And most of these don't have a good mechanism, but they're just fun. And yeah. this is one of the few French swords that I actually have. All the other ones are small swords or spadrons, and or épées de soldats. And yeah, I contest that the best French swords were British, and I will fight anyone who <laughs> doesn't believe me. With this. Oh. <laughs> I would. And then just go and show it to the. So that's See the fun thing. go and focus so yeah the French are very good at really nice marking feeling. and the mechanism is the fun part mm. so there's a spring and a button so this just folds out and the peg falls in there and that protects so, the outside of the hand that folding hilt, is that just for practicality so it lies nice and neat against the trousers or, or is it just to be cool? I think the French just like gadgets. Yeah. The, the French have most of the folding guards that I know of. I've seen a few British ones and a few Dutch ones, mm -hmm. but the French have most of them and they're cool. And yeah, the French have style. I've got to give them that when it comes to swords. And their earlier ones, 18th century, are just incredibly beautiful. Mm. But they also look English, which is good. Well, um, I think that is a perfect place to finish. That's, that's the last sword on the table. Thank you so much, Thierry, for sharing with us. Um, and tell us uh, where we can go. What's your website if people want to go and look at your more of your collection? Well, my website is thierrythesoardguy.com. I'm also on Instagram, Facebook, uh, under the same name. I post pretty regularly, and all of my swords are going to be weird and wonderful. I'm not the biggest fan of standard patterns, but I will always find anyone who asks something that is interesting. The weird and the unusual, that's what we like. Okay, I think we'll finish it there, so thank you very much. That's yeah, alright, happy to be here. Thank you folks. And We hope you enjoyed this podcast. To show your appreciation, please give us a five-star review on your podcast platform or support our work by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash swordwomen. Go to at Swordwomen on Instagram to see upcoming interviews.
or visit buythesword.net to learn about our events. Or visit our Facebook page, Buy the Sword.